Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. These algorithms, they're going to be increasingly influential to us in the future. And I think that you just draw a straight line out from where we are. And you can kind of see a future that is not a good one, I <laughs> think, which includes us basically being uh, something akin to feed animals for algorithms that need our data, right? That need our uh, information. That sounds a little, uh, you know, salacious when I say it like that. But like these tools are others, right? They are almost creatures and machines or organisms in themselves that want to capture our attention for very clear purposes. And it's not a nefarious purpose necessarily. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Tobias, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure. So you have a new book out called Outrage Machine, uh, How Tech Amplifies, Disconnects, Disrupts Democracy, and What We Can Do About It. And you were referred to me by Matan Grafell, but right when I saw the title, I was like, yeah, I want to know about this because uh, <laughs> it's such a prevalent issue. But before we get into the book, uh, I wanted to start asking, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping what you've ended up doing with your life and career? Yeah, well, uh, thanks for the the, the opening question, uh, taking it to an interesting personal place. I, my my parents were actually um, had kind of unconventional backgrounds. Uh, my dad uh, was a musician who became a programmer and then a journalist um, uh, in his kind of uh, retirement years. And uh, my mom uh, it was a librarian who became a, a college professor uh, and a writer. Uh, so she uh, she studied a lot of uh, you know. Academia and uh, uh, in academia, she studied uh, 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 Shakespeare and women's lit. So, <laughs> yeah, broad, broad, uh, broad range here. Yeah. Well, how did that influence you? I mean, and particularly when it comes to journalism, like if you think about how journalism has evolved and how much has changed from when your your dad was a journalist to now. Like, I remember asking Cal Fussman this question. Uh, he interviewed all these people. And I remember he said, you know, when he was growing up, it was like Walter Cronkite was the single source of truth. And he said, and the internet changed all of that. So I'm curious, like, how your dad's uh, career shaped your own. And what advice did your parents give you about making your way in the world? 
Yeah. So my my dad, uh, when he was a journalist, and this is you know kind of in the uh, the nineties and two thousands, uh, he was a technology journalist journalist for a while, and um, he he uh, was a reporter for the local paper that we uh, in the town that we grew up in, and he uh, you know the local paper was this kind of bastion of of community. It was this very kind of central place that everyone in my hometown went to for good uh, information and news happenings. Uh, it was this kind of community uh, feed, you know, this, this place where, uh, where people kept in touch with one another um, and found out what was happening. Um, There's this really important hub for kind of understanding. Um, and so, yeah, when he, when he joined the paper, uh, I think there was uh, maybe 15 people on staff uh, at that point in time, uh, the local paper. And when he left uh, in the early uh, or in the mid 2010s, um, there, I think there was two people on staff. So, wow. so his, uh, uh, so his paper went through this period of kind of being this, you know, this kind of golden, uh, golden place for uh, community discourse to basically being um, a shell of its former self, which is indicative of the broader news industry and what has happened uh, over the course of the last few decades with news and information consumption. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, how did that influence like what you've ended up deciding to do? And I I know you talk about this later in the book, but I mean, since you brought up, you know, the the local newspaper, like I was just thinking about the two local newspapers in the towns I grew up in. And I was thinking like, do I even remember the fucking name of the newspaper in Riverside? And I do, it's the Press Enterprise. But like the last time I saw the Riverside Press Enterprise on our doorstep is, was so long ago that I can't even remember uh, when it was. But, what are the consequences as a society for us not having a local newspaper or community feed? Like, because I, to be candid with you, I don't think I know half of what the hell is going on in Riverside. Mm-hmm. I, like, yeah. I don't know anything. Even in my Google News feed, there's literally nothing about Riverside in it. Right, right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think I think there's something to be really said for how uh, how important these central places were and still are to uh to communities you know most of our attention uh in the last decade has gone to social media instead of traditional media uh and there's certain kind of preconditions and certain kind of affordances that social media has certain kind of uh design elements that social media has that that uh that that local news doesn't have right um and there's actually strong correlation between uh democratic involvement in local politics uh in actually having kind of a view of what is wrong in your local community, um, and having a, an available local newspaper. So, uh, so uh, yeah, as as this transition happened from uh, from kind of you know print print journalism to social media, um, we we lost a lot. Uh, we we absolutely lost lost a lot in that transition. And um, yeah, so I think growing up in that space and just like recognizing. So my sister, for instance, uh, when I was very young, she was on the front page of our of our paper. Um, I had a couple of like features in the paper when I was growing up as well. Everyone kind of had a touch point with this paper and knew someone uh, who was was involved with it or or um, was featured in it at some point in time. And so it really was this this kind of central repository for great um, community connection. Uh, and yeah, when when we all went to social media during that time, uh, something was really lost. You know, um, uh, I grew up in uh, the North Bay and uh, in the Bay Area and. Uh, there were a huge uh, number of fires that happened uh, over the course of the last like five, six years, um, starting um, with some really, really terrible ones. Uh, unfortunately, my parents' house also burned down in one of those fires. 
But I remember um, the the actual reporting that happened um, during that time was was fantastic reporting. People really, you know, journalists going out and actually recovering some of these really important events and fires and people's lives had been changed. But uh, but most people still went to social media to get information, and there was a lot of bad information about the fires. But people went there because it was fast and because it was urgent and because they had been habituated to going on social media to find information on a regular basis. And it makes sense that, you know, they would do that for sure. But something was absolutely lost uh, in that transition, mainly that like factual information actually has become much harder to find and rumors have become far more uh, uh, pernicious and available as a result of of social media. Um, There are these kind of analogs to it uh, on social media. So there's like a Facebook group for my hometown now. Uh, Mm -hmm. But you go there and it's like, you know, that's a 30% personal branding and people promoting their own (laughs) little things. Uh, in, in town, you know, uh, 30% kind of gossip, (laughs) right? Like just literal gossip about, about stuff that, that may or may not be true. Uh, and, and then like, yeah, then maybe 40% photos and, you know, people just kind of offering up stuff for sale or whatever else. So it has taken some portion of the place of, of, of the the local news, but, but writ large, the thing that was lost was a, a real kind of window into the central uh, or organ of the community that everyone yeah. used. Mm. Well, you know, like, it's funny because I, I have, for all intents and purposes, basically quit Facebook. Like, I have literally not posted anything there for, like, the better part of this year and probably the same as Instagram. Like, I scroll through Instagram, like, just to see what's going on and talk to a few friends. But um, one of the things that I always find fascinating about people who are like writers or journalists who predated all of this is the the difference in their commitment to craft versus the people who are sort of like, you know, like these millennial modern journalists who write for Business Insider. I'll give you an example. So Business Insider published this uh, like 30 lessons from 30 years from some some girl. Uh, and I wrote, you know, I, I do this every year on my birthday, like I write. And mine was like the equivalent of like a book. You can find it on, on Medium somewhere. It's ridiculously long. And I submitted mine to Business Insider and hers was just like literally like a list of one sentence each. Yeah. And I'm like, so this is what they prioritize because I mean, to some of the points you made in the book, it's like clickbait. Um, and it was to me, that was just a, a commentary on like what has happened to our capacity for depth when it comes to our consumption abilities. But also like when you think you would talk to somebody like Cal Newport, you're like, wow, this also has like a pretty significant effect on our ability to create things of depth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the the internet has has trended uh, towards, and this is just a this is a, a function of ep- economics uh, as much as anything else. But the internet has started this process of uh, really reducing, um, you know, per on the on the per click basis. It's much easier to get uh, to get uh, ad revenue for uh, for short stories versus long form content, right? Because you can the more short stories you consume, uh, the better. Uh, yeah, the better. Uh, income stream that is for the for the uh online outlet so mm-hmm. that is that is like a fundamental problem you'll see this happen a lot of times with the kind of the stories that have these listicles where you go from you know it's like one story but you have to click through to the next page to get to the next next uh list item because yeah. they can that story is worth 15 times the the uh the ad value of a single story where people are kind of uh slowly reading and calmly consuming their uh long-form content so um so yeah, so the kind of listicalization of the internet is a real phenomena and a not a good one, I think, uh, writ large. Uh, yeah. but that is that is definitely a function of the uh, the attention economy and the way it's designed right now, unfortunately. 
Well, I mean, your mother being a professor, your dad being a journalist, what did they teach you about truth, journalism, and craft when it comes to writing? Yeah, great question. So uh, on the on the journalism side, my you know my dad was at this this paper and um, just understanding what it took to go out and get a story, you know, going out and actually having a bunch of conversations with different people, uh, uh, verifying, trying to kind of trying to do fact checking, right? Trying to make sure that there's uh, primary sources involved in uh, involved in a story, trying to make sure that there's some kind of corroboration, some kind of foundational sense of corroboration, so that the thing. Uh, so it's not just kind of a, you know, a, um, a puff piece or uh, something that's that is based on uh, on, on rumor or hearsay um, that that basic kind of structure, just like watching him go out and trying to corroborate stuff is really a critical, interesting thing that I think is not part of discourse about what journalists do. Journalists do have, you know, a lot of kind of reputational capital on the line when they're putting things together. And so if you mm-hmm. publish a falsehood, um, unlike on social media, you can get called out of it. Uh, on that and you can lose your job, right? So there is, yeah. there is actually, uh, some pr- professional risk involved, uh, mm-hmm. with, with that. And that, that was really, uh, important and foundational for me understanding and writing about this book. So yeah, my book is very much about kind of the kind of, uh, how we understand the truth, right? What the yeah. foundations are of truth and how, how do we know the difference between rumor, uh, or hearsay and mm-hmm. uh and actual verified information and um and it, it turns out that is a very knowable like we actually do have uh, uh fingerprints for good information versus bad information uh and uh and that's not something that i think is a common piece of knowledge right people tend to consume information online um at face value a lot of the time mm-hmm. um yeah. and they usually align that with their kind of moral dispositions or emotional dispositions right so if they see something that disconfirms their emotions then they'll be like, I don't believe that, uh, versus something that kind of confirms their, their, uh, their emotions, their emotional kind of tribal biases or their confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they'll, uh, then they'll share that onward. Right. Um, yeah. uh, but that's not, that's not actually how we got ahead as a species. Like we were actually required some, some really important, um, structures to be put in place into how we share information. And yeah. so in my book, I go back way to the beginning of, of kind of the printing press and and before to try to unpack mm-hmm. what it was that made both uh, both news gathering and academia different from other forms of information generation, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, it turns out that both of these uh, both of these kind of institutions, journalism and academia, have really important structures in place that primarily have to do with being able to call each other out on uh, on what you might call bullshit right when uh when one person says something that is uh that is that is false then there's reputations on the line uh Mm -hmm. for the uh for the 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 uh, the person that says the falsehoods so uh so and they they actually get you know called out or uh demoted or or fired if they um if they say the wrong thing and you can you can find these knowledge networks right this is basically the creation this difference between uh between kind of viral information networks like social media and actual knowledge networks, which is places where a lot of institutions, individuals with reputations on the line are actually competing to call each other out on bullshit. And the result of that is uh, actually better information for all of us. That's what, uh, you know, labs at universities do. Um, that's what, uh, that's what multiple journalistic institutions do, right. That are covering kind of the same area, the same beat. They'll be like, that didn't happen or that happened. Mm. Um, and the result of that is actually, and that's like science is how we got science in the first place is people being skeptical of one another in these really controlled settings. Um, uh, uh, but it, it's kind of the hidden, the invisible, 
you know, the invisible story of how we know so much about the world is the creation and evolution of these knowledge networks. Yeah. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally get that because my dad's a college professor. Uh, so I, I get that whole idea. And I, I want to come back to this idea of science. Like You may have read it. We had a, a guy named John Petricelli here who wrote a book called The Life-Changing Science of Detecting Bullshit. Uh, and uh, like he goes through like all the various forms of media and he even like calls out TED Talks, even though he himself had a TED Talk about why TED Talks are bullshit, uh, which I thought was pretty hilarious. Nice. Um, 
<laughs> but let's get into the book because you open the book by saying this book is about a machine designed to make you angry. The machine has a purpose to inform you of what's happening in the world. Its job is to get you to pay attention and it has become exceptionally good at this task. This task so good, in fact, that it has found out what makes you specifically you very mad and in the process has divided you. It's fractured you into opinions. It asked, has asked you to, to be for or against each new issue it has served. This machine is our modern media system. And like, just as I was like reading that, I couldn't help but notice one of the strange paradoxes. And I like had this con conversation with my dad constantly uh, about the news because, you know, he watches the news every night. And I'm like, dad, I'm like, you're missing one fundamental thing here. The news, like, yes, you might think it exists to inform the public, but the primary purpose of the news is to sell ads. It's a business. Um, and so talk about like, how did we get here in the first place? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I really try to, in this book, start from a, the kind of platonic elements of what journalism is to try to understand what, like, how, yeah, how does the media work? What is it, like, what is it doing to us? Um, uh, and what are, you know, what are its good things and what are its bad things? And try to try to take a pretty neutral stance throughout it. But with the general recognition that something is pretty wrong with the way that we process information. We, you know, we, we get, uh, news now that is so, uh, omnipresent about what's happening in the world. We have so many sources of potential, uh, outrages, discontents, uh, problems, right? The, the world is full of issues. The world is full of problems that need solving, but we are finite individual humans and we can't expect to solve all of them. So there's this real mismatch with the quantity of available things to upset us and outrage us. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, it may entertain us to some degree, right? Because sometimes, uh, you know, sensational news is entertaining, but there's a mismatch between the number of problems that are available to us and our capacity to actually process those problems. So there's this filtering process, this, this filtering mechanism, which is, which is traditional media, which tries to take the stuff that, um, that is most interesting to us and serve it to us, right? And, uh, and get us to pay attention. And what I mean by pay attention, I mean, literally pay attention, right? We are actually paying our attention, um, because our attention is worth money to advertisers. Um, and that is the kind of core function of the news industry is to package our attention, is to package our attention, uh, and sell it to advertisers, <laughs> uh, while also serving us, uh, information, um, that is happening in the world, uh, contemporary, contemporaneous information is happening in the world. And that's, that's the core, that's the core mechanism that, uh, that also in these most recent years has become so efficient at finding the specific issues that trigger you, right? We built this very fundamental tr uh, kind of sync triggering system that, that will find the specific issues that will, are more like most likely to trigger you, uh, and serve those to you, um, uh, uh, because it's more profitable. And I don't think this was a nefarious thing by any means. You know, I, I know a lot of people that were very early at social media companies and they were designing a lot of these algorithms and a lot of these uh, design elements that have brought us to this point. Uh, and it is just really a kind of efficient efficiency function. They've just gotten much, much better at doing this thing. Uh, but uh, us as consumers, we are struggling as a result of that. We, you know, there's, there's far more information than we can actually digest and, uh, and find useful these days. So we, we need to figure out a better way of navigating this cacophony of urgent issues. Because when everything is urgent, right, nothing is, right? If we're, if we're overwhelmed by, uh, by the, the horrors of the world, then we feel paralyzed, right? We, uh, we feel helpless. 
And um, that's not a productive place to be, especially in a democracy, because in a democracy, we require good information. We require shared information in order to solve problems together. Well, talk me through the history of various um, communication mediums, because I know you wrote about them in the book, like the printing press and, uh, you know, radio, television. Like, talk to me about how this problem has evolved with each sort of iteration of what we consider the media. Sure. So each new media technology that comes along uh, has a very... uh, uh, you know, disruptive period that comes in its wake. Uh, we, we tend to look backwards at the, you know, the innovations and the tools that we use today. And we tend to think about them as being kind of lovely little miracles that we enjoy, right? We, we uh, appreciate the fact that we can, uh, you know, turn on a television and get live news streaming into our homes. We appreciate the fact we can turn our radio in the car. Uh, that people do that less and less these days and get live information about what's happening. We appreciate the fact that we can buy a book for cheap, <laughs> extremely cheap, right? Uh, and, uh, and, uh, get great, uh, great information uh, about what's happening in the world. But, but each of these, uh, inventions in terms of, uh, how, how, you know, h- how media is produced, each, each one had this period, um, that involved a really explosive disruption behind it. And so, uh, you know, while I was writing this book, I asked the question, I was like, what is it about like it, this moment in time that feels so problematic? Everyone has some feeling that there's something wrong. Like there's something going wrong in the world right now. Things are like the future is an anxious, is an anxious place. People are anxious about the future. There's, there's a fearful place. There's a lot of concern about what is happening. Like I just could not shake the feeling that this, this is a totally new experience. Uh, you know, a totally new sub- subjective experience in history. So, so yeah, so I, I basically went back in history and I spent, you know, uh, six years <laughs> researching this book. So it was a, a pretty deep dive, but, uh, I went back to every major media disruption from the printing press, uh, towards to, to look at these kind of, um, these huge chaotic cacophonous, uh, disruptions to society that happened in their wake. And it turns out each one has a period of, of chaos that, in, that, uh, that, that follows, right? So the printing press, um, was this, you know, fantastic invention. It was, uh, uh it was a yeah, innovation in its time. Uh, and it was basically a hundred fold increase in output. Um, so you could previous to that point, uh, just print a few pages per day. And all of a sudden you could print, uh, hundreds of pages per day. And, uh, so, uh, back in Europe, when that happened, uh, this is, this was actually a surprisingly violent invention. Um, you would think, you wouldn't think that you'd be like, Oh, books, books are great. But if you look at what happened, um, with Martin Luther, who is this, this Catholic priest who got very upset by, uh, the, the way the Catholic church was using the printing press to actually print these little indulgences, which were little, uh, kind of hall passes to heaven. Um, so Martin Luther, he, he, uh, went out of his way to, write down uh, his 95 theses, which were basically little outrages, little angry, <laughs> it's basically a tweet storm. If you look at it right now, it really resembles uh, kind of a modern Twitter thread. Um, uh, but each one is a, 90, is, a, is a point about how the church is doing something wrong and how it needs to be fixed. Um, and those, those uh, tweets, <laughs> those, you know, uh, uh, medieval tweets, they went viral. Uh, they intersected with the, you know, the 
printing press and they were printed uh, in town squares. They were printed uh, all over Europe because this because this new uh, this new medium allowed for that information to spread widely. And um, the result was this 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 huge upset to uh, European society at the time, which ended up causing uh, roughly a hundred years of civil wars as society kind of reformatted itself to account for the huge new mis- new interpretations and understandings of uh, of the Bible, which was soon translated um, uh, into a common language and common German um, from Latin for the first time because of the printing press. But there was this you know, kind of cacophonous period of, of civil wars and uh, and massacres and you know viral misinformation everywhere that came as a result of the printing press. And we don't think about it that way historically, right? We wouldn't want to give up our books. We wouldn't want to uninvent the printing press. But there was this period afterward that was terribly upsetting for society, right? Um, so, uh, so each it turns out each media technology has this kind of period afterwards. I, I call it this dark valley of hidden harm because the harms of a tool are actually obscured by uh, by its widespread adoption. And it turns out, you know, everything from the printing press, the telegraph, uh, to the radio, to the television, each one has these kind of these kind of uh, viral explosions of problems that come from uh, misuse of these tools. Uh, and society takes a while to figure out how to make them useful and not harmful. Um, and, uh, you know, as we're entering into the world of, of AI and as these kind of new, new media technologies and new other technologies are coming into use much more readily, I think we need to be, uh, we need to understand this pattern, right? This is a pattern that happens when new media is a new tech comes into our lives. There's going to be harms that come from it. So we need to kind of get closer to this, this, this recognition of how, uh, how bad it could be <laughs> before it gets really bad. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, does it seem like it's, you know, amplified this time just because of the scale? Because one thing I think that you alluded to in the book is, is like the major difference I think here is that what, you know, these companies are able to do is to capture our information at scale and then also our, our attention at scale and then spread information at scale, whether it's, you know, factual or not. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, this, this is a difference. Uh, a difference, you know, a difference in degree can create a difference in kind, right? Ultimately, so uh, so this is this is new. Um, you know, I, I think that you know the the, the broader patterns hold from uh, you know from from uh, century to century, and these these adaptations to new pieces of technology. But uh, but this is a new this is a new time. I, I don't think we've gotten this close to the instantaneous ability to uh, to spread a single piece of information at the speed of light around the world. And that is mm-hmm. that is kind of you know we've basically maxed out the speed of information tra- uh, traveling um, between brains, um, and uh, that is a, that is a strange uh, that is a strange new uh, superpower that we have, right? We are all kind of imbued with this superpower of telepathy uh, for uh, for the first time as a species, right? Like I can I can think a thing, and as long you know as long as I can get it out of my brain and and press press send on uh the, the tweet or the x or that whatever it is the post <laughs> i can yeah. i can get it uh anywhere on earth um mm-hmm. you know uh to the right audience um with the, if it has the right uh ranking algorithm getting it to the right people and that is that is a real new uh liability in a lot of ways right but you know if you look at the the types of information that tend to go viral the types of information that tend to travel the quickest 
it's not actually the best information. It's not the best sourced information. It's not the best uh, understood information. It's usually stuff lacking context. It tends to be highly emotional. Uh, it tends to be, uh, uh, you know, outraged. <laughs> it tends to be things that that people instantaneously, instantaneously emotionally respond to. And uh, that's not great for uh, for sense making in the wider world, right? So if we're if we're only getting the emotional hot take and not the verified, um, you know, deeply uh, referenced, understood version of a of an event, then we're going to respond the wrong way to that. And I think that's one of the core issues with the modern internet. Well, let's talk about context because I think that that is one of those things that I feel is like completely like I feel like we're context blind. When we can, you know, consume self-help books, when we watch the news, when we th- see things on the internet. Um, and you say that without context, ambiguity can lead to devastating misunderstandings. The act, this act of packaging a social post captures a moment without context, like an unflattering still image frozen from an otherwise cohesive film. It allows us to copy and paste the most salacious seconds from a much longer story into an unforgiving environment where it's primed for judgment. But what happens next is worse, context creep. Those who are most offended by this initial post want to share it with others, and in doing so, they inject it with their own editorial bent. Something that was already taken out of its original context is now placed in an entirely new one. And there are a couple of things that this reminded me of. Um, Trevor Noah, when he did his final episode, he has this like probably one-minute monologue where he literally says, context is everything. And yet it's so frequently overlooked. And, you know, like the, the funny thing is like I had this bizarre experience where Glenn Beck found my book and, you know, loved it. And I ended up being on the Glenn Beck show. And uh, this was like back in 2013. I didn't know the first thing about Glenn Beck. I didn't even know who he was. Like my dream media appearance was the Daily Show. So you can imagine how little I knew about Glenn. Beck. Uh, but I remember when I shared that on Facebook, people were like, this guy's an asshole. I wouldn't want him to like make my book a bestseller. And I was like, okay, well, guess what? He agrees with me on something. So let me go talk to him and find out what that is. Um, but one thing that really struck me and it, like, you know, I know he's said some like just atrocious things. Like I've seen some of the video clips. Um, was the difference between like the general public perception and who he, he actually was like, I ended up writing this piece about like, you know, um, like the difference between persona and persona, a person and how media creates a mask because all of us in the public eye are playing characters to a degree. So talking about the, the role that context plays and more importantly, like why are we so blind to context? Yeah. Context is such a fascinating and important thing that, you know, I think once you, once you recognize how easy it is to lose context, in our modern uh, media ecosystem, it's hard to not see it, <laughs> right? It's hard to it's hard to to not uh, recognize how uh, how problematic <laughs> uh, certain media can be. So you know, every time we put a piece of information into uh, social media or any any kind of media, really, we're actually changing that information, right? We're, we're present we're, we're we're taking it from its kind of original form, uh, which is uh, which is nuanced. <laughs> it's long form. It's rich. And we're, t- we're turning it into something else. Um, so that, you know, this is like a Marshall McLuhan uh, thing. The, the, the media is the message or the medium is the message, right? That, that mm-hmm. when we actually turn something into media, we change it uh, in a fundamental way. Um, you know, with social media, there, that, te- that change is very apparent in that you have a, you know, oftentimes a, a character limitation. Uh, you don't necessarily know if it's a real person behind the actual post itself. 
you don't uh, you, you don't know if uh, if if the if the if the bearers is is trustworthy or not. You don't know a lot about the original kind of uh, uh, information when it goes into there. You actually just only know what you get from this you know this, this small kind of text box of information that comes on their side. Um, and so there's there's a couple things that I think are really important to recognize that that when context is collapsed into this, right? You're losing the kind of charitable interpretations of, if it's, especially if it's a contentious event, right? Something that happens. Say you and I have a discussion or argument and it gets heated at one moment in time and I say something uh, or you say something that's that's a little bit uh, kind of, un, you know, uncharitable and uh, and we and we discuss it and then we get to some kind of resolution about it and we get into some more common ground around it. Someone can take this, you know, this conversation we're having and cut out that particular piece of uh, the disagreement in which, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I call you a name and you respond in a mean way. And, uh, and they can turn that into a piece of viral media. Um, and so the, you know, the, the careful nuance, the, the natural resolution, all of the stuff that, that, that went, you know, the lead up to that event, also the lead up to the, the miscommunication or the, the difficult moment, that is all lost when it's packaged and we, and we lose a sense of, of, reality in that we lose the you know a piece of actual real lived experience there and instead we're given this this tiny kind of emotional chunk of of information um that is uh engaging to us right but also not uh completely true and yeah. uh that's that's bad right that's bad for mm-hmm. i mean it's 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 a necessity of efficiency to get the information uh, out there sometimes uh but it, but what social media does very very well is it allows for misinterpretation, right? So that, that piece that is taken out of context, that's stripped of context and forced into this tiny box, uh, it is, uh, now ripe for misinterpretation and, and, uh, it's, it's ripe for, uh, for someone taking a side, you know, my side, your side in that conversation, in that, in that argument, um, without understanding the deeper nuance of that, of that, uh, of that disagreement. Um, and uh, then what social media does very, very well is it allows for us to add our own context to it, right? So it's not mm-hmm. just, con- it's not just lacking context. It allows for people to say, oh, you know, this disagreement that they had, like, this is what it means. This is why it's more important to society for us to understand this kind of reckoning, this anecdotal reckoning for, uh, for, you know, any kind of hint of like power asymmetry between uh, you and I, any kind of, you know, if, if, if you know, say, you know, I'm a Republican and you're a Democrat, uh, then, then, uh, it, it becomes a, a post about identity, right? People can say, oh, this is, this is what's wrong with Republicans or this is what's wrong with Democrats. And it becomes this kind of like funhouse mirror, uh, rep- uh, you know, misrepresenting, uh, reality and the deeper, uh, the deeper engagement, the deeper kind of nuance and, and, you know, information that was, that was present in that, uh, in that conversation. And so we're, it's kind of turning that information into a moral play for all of mm-hmm. us, right? So they had these moral plays back in the, Back in the Middle Ages, in which people would like watch, you know, uh, the righteous person deal with a, a difficult moral issue, and then and then resolve the moral issue uh, in a way that that was, uh, you know, uh, educational for the for the observer. Uh, basically, that's what social media does on a regular basis: it just turns everything into this deeply moral uh, uh, play in which we're all kind of taking sides on one side or another, and that tends to actually inflame. Um, a sense of in-group and out-group bias, right? So if there's yeah. a, a power asymmetry that's available for, you know, one group versus another group, then you can use that as your the example of this is why all of those people are bad, right? Or this is why all these people are good. This is why my group is good. 
And so that's one of the reasons why we see so much, I think, identity information on social media these days. So many indicators of identity, like hashtag identity, this hashtag identity, that is because we are threatened by a lot of these, uh, these kind of moral, uh, anecdotes that, uh, we get served, uh, morally outrageous anecdotes that we get served on a regular basis. So we want to defend our in groups and denigrate the out groups. And uh, that's like one of the fundamental problems with social media. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improved jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. 
Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, it, you know, it reminds me of uh, like my experience with reality TV. Um, there's this Netflix show, Indeed Matchmaking, that I was on. And uh, I remember talking to my cousin when I signed the media release. He's like, it doesn't matter what the release says. Anybody can make you look like a jackass in editing. And he's like, your job is to make sure you don't give them any ammo to do that with. But like, even when I saw how the show was cut together, like Cal Newport asked me, he's like, so what are the, the, you know, what's the, the situation here? He's like, is it scripted? I was like, no, it's not scripted. Like everything you see is like spot on. I said, but I was like, the job of a reality TV producer is not to showcase reality. It's to entertain the audience. Reality right. is pretty yeah. fucking boring. It'd be like, here's Shrini brushing his teeth. Here's Shrini taking a shit. Nobody wants to see that. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, let's find the crazy, like. It, it, like it was pretty, you know, like and you know, the girl they matched me with, like basically became the villain of the show. But like she, in a lot of ways, like gave them so much material that they ended up building the whole season pretty much around her. Um, because like I, I remember talking to them that like when she would talk, they like keep the camera rolling, do not turn that thing off, right? Um, <laughs> so right. that's you know one thing that, that this reminds me of. But I think that you know, there's no way we're gonna get out of this conversation without talking about like politics and elections because of the role that it played. And there's one thing that caught my attention is that graph that you have of like media attention by candidate. Um, I think you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, because my dad and I've had these like conversations about Trump and I was like, you know, like whatever, like I like personally, I think the guy is an idiot, but what I do think he's absolutely brilliant at is the, like to me the reason he won was he understood the way the media works better than any of those other candidates because like i remember by the time i had heard of the other um like nom- the republican candidates i was like wait trump was already the nominee at that point and i was like jesus this guy drowned out everybody with yeah. the way he was able to court media attention by saying the craziest shit imaginable because like I, I told one of my friends I was like Think about all those crazy things he said and how many times those sound bites were played for the next four years. Yeah, absolutely. Over and over. So this is a, a bizarre question. Like one, you know, what role uh, does social media play in not only our political discourse and how, you know, but and how leaders elected and what's it going to mean for the future? But just out of curiosity, if there was no Twitter, like if Trump had ran for president pre-social media, do you think that he would have had the impact that he did? Definitely not. And, you know, he tried, actually, you can you can look back. He was a he was a candidate. He was considering candidacies uh, many, many times uh, between, uh, you know, uh, earlier on in his in his career. Uh, we, we've known who Trump is for a very long time. Right. I think this is really interesting about Trump is like recognizing that he has been in the public eye for a very, very long time. Uh, and he's actually publicly explored candidacies for the presidency for a very long time as well. Um, and yeah, that particular graph that you're talking about is media coverage of top presidential candidates um, during the 2016 election, during uh, one period of the 2016 election. And, you know, he got, he got like almost, almost 5x the, 
the coverage of any other candidate, including Hillary Clinton at that point in time, uh, yeah. in terms of homepage mes- mentions during that period of time. Uh, and yeah, he's, he's a fantastic, he's very, he's a brilliant, uh, media strategist, right? He has a great kind of media sensibility and understanding what will actually capture the most attention of his, uh, of his audiences. I think what's really interesting about Trump is actually if you look back, uh, during this period of, uh, between, uh, 2011, 2012, there was this transition that happened in his media, uh, in his social media presence in which he went from, um, being a kind of standard celebrity online persona, right? If you look back at his Twitter, his tweets uh, uh, from that era, you can see that he would get an average of roughly, you know, 40 to 50 uh, retweets per item uh, per post that he would make. Um, and there's something that happened, uh, I think it was around June of 2011, in which he, I think he was watching Fox News at the time, uh, you know, and before this point, it was, you know, uh, check out my new development in Trump Soho, or I'm going to be at the, I'm going to be on the view tomorrow. Enjoy. And it was a standard kind of celebrity, uh, information that he was putting out on his, on his, on his, uh, on his Twitter, uh, account. But what happened, uh, in, yeah, June 2011, he was watching Fox News and he was watching a segment about Barack Obama. And, uh, he tweeted something about how Barack Obama is a radical. Um, like he's a radical politician with a radical agenda and his tweets went from, you know, 40 average of 40 retweets to a thousand retweets for that particular tweet. Right. So there's all of a sudden he had this tremendous signal from his audience, people, uh, people commenting on it, people retweeting. It was like huge attention. Right. And you actually watch from that point, you can see how he begins to lean into this more outrageous, bombastic, blowhard personality uh, uh, and begins to tweet more and more outraged stuff, right? So he actually becomes trained by Twitter throughout that period to uh, express the more extreme versions of his perspectives. And you can just watch it happen. You can watch it, you know, from, you know, uh, week over week from that point, him leaning into this, uh, into this kind of, uh, extreme and outrageous uh, personality that we've come to know as the primary uh, personality displays, you know, as a as a presidential candidate, as a president, um, because he could see that it actually captured a lot of attention, right? So, uh, so it's you can you really recognize how powerful this thing is, how powerful social media is as a tool, both for finding audiences, but also be, for being manipulated by the response of those audiences, right? I, I think that, you know, Trump has been, you know, like I said, he's been in the public eye for his whole life, my whole life, the entire time that I've been alive, Trump has been someone that has been known, you know, and he wasn't always this outraged, uh, uh, bombastic, um, kind of toxic individual um, for a huge portion of, of the country. He was actually like, he tried, he, you know, he tried to play the media game um, with traditional media. He tried to be, a look, you know, look, go on the talk shows and look like a, uh, a, a wealthy businessman who, you know, said it how it was. And he, he really did try to kind of court uh, his audiences in the way that he thought would get the most attention at that point in time. And with the, the old school media environment that required him to kind of be a smart moderate, right, more or less. And uh, the result of social media was that of him, him on social media was that he actually be, he had this new vehicle through which to lean into a more extreme persona because that's what his audience wanted. Um, mm-hmm. So this is the phenomenon called audience capture, which I think is a really important one for recognizing how social media kind of turns us into more extreme versions of ourselves and how it actually trains us 
to be uh, to be slightly more extreme in our opinions, um, no matter where we are, because we are all signal processing machines. So if we respond to certain types of signals, you know, I'm posting throughout the day or throughout the the weekend. I post about this. I post about that. I post about my job. I post about a baby picture. I post, you know, a picture of my cat, and then I post something I'm angry about. It turns out moral outrage has a 17% boost to virality uh, per moral and emotional word that you use. So if I say something, if I'm like stuck in traffic, for instance, and uh, you know, I, I tweet, I'm stuck in traffic, that will get, you know, average engagement. <laughs> but if I tweet, <laughs> tweet uh, I'm so angry, I'm stuck in this horrible traffic. Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, he needs to figure out how to fix this. This is a disgrace. I'm disgusted. That is far more likely to get traction online. And as a result, I'm going to get, I'm going to start tweeting stuff like that more because that, that actually gets more signal from my audience. It actually trains me to, to, to respond in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, let's do this. I, I, I want to come back to that. Um, but let's talk about the role of AI. Uh, like I'm, I think I am an AI enthusiast, like to a degree that some people I think, okay, like Trini has lost his fucking mind. Like I think as a creative person, this has enabled me to do things that I've never been able to do before at a speed and a scale that I've never been able to do before. Uh, and with nowhere near the amount of resources, like I was literally in my mem note taking app yesterday saying, how can I use your capabilities to build an artificially intelligent team, like create different roles, which I thought was like, this is really cool. Um, but I also understand there are consequences to this, um, because one of the things that you say about AI is that there will literally be no aspect of human life that uh, won't be affected by it or touched by it. Right. Yeah, I, I think that AI is a huge, uh, a huge new uh, technology. It's a huge new media technology also, because right, it's really just taking kind of the corpus of all of human information and, and turning it into uh, a new, uh, a new kind of digested form of media that we have available to us. So I think that, yeah, I think the AI is going to be an enormous, uh, I mean, already is deeply disruptive, uh, to our species, you know, like the, the strike in Hollywood. I don't think that would be happening without, uh, AI right now. I think we're going to see a lot of industries going on strike in the near future because, uh, this is going to upset a tremendous number of, uh, historically, uh, good, you know, good paying jobs, uh, that kind of thing. But I think the bigger issue with uh, with AI, I, I don't think you need to have, uh, you know, a sci-fi dystopian, uh, you know, hand wavy mindset to kind of see actually where we're going with this stuff right now, right? So the the algorithms that we currently use to capture attention, um, they're extremely powerful, right? They're profoundly uh, influential to our politics, to uh, to us as individuals, to our communities. Um, uh, to identities also. And, you know, if you, if you think about the current way we spend our time online, a lot of that is actually dictated by algorithms, right? That's not a controversial statement, but we're becoming essentially, um, if you draw this line out, you know, 10 years into the future, right? As these algorithms get better and better and better at being, uh, at being, and I'm, when I was talking about specifically engagement algorithms, right? Which is what, has allowed for TikTok to become the most popular uh, platform in the world. Uh, it's you know the, the primary thing that's that's pushed uh, Facebook and Twitter and uh, YouTube to uh, be such enormous players in our daily lives. Um, but these algorithms they're going to be increasingly influential to us in the future. And I think that you just draw a straight line out from where we are 
And you can kind of see a future that is not a good one, <laughs> I think, which includes, uh, which includes us basically being, uh, something akin to feed animals for algorithms that need our data, right? That need our, uh, information. That sounds a little, uh, you know, salacious when I say it like that, but like these tools are others, right? They are almost creatures and machines or organisms in themselves that want to capture our attention for very clear purposes. And it's not a nefarious purpose necessarily, but, um, you know, reality, I would say this, I come back to this on a regular basis, but reality is already quite tenuous for us, right? As a society, right? We don't actually know a lot about what <laughs> we don't know. Like fake news is a, is a real thing. Uh, no. real news, I think is, is losing the real information is losing the battle, um, against fake news, right? And I don't think it takes a whole lot for us to uh, actually lose our foothold in reality. Um, you know, nearly half of the country right now believes uh, some uh, proven falsehoods about the 2020 election, as an example, mm -hmm. right? And that's largely a result of, of algorithms that are a little bit better at capturing our attention and serving us the things that we want to believe, right? Yeah. Um, so I think there's a point in which the exertion required to stay integrated with the rest of our species actually feels like too much, uh, you know, where our minds want to go unchallenged, uh, where they want to be comfortable. And that's what these algorithms are really good. That's when they get us, right? When we're tired, when we're hungry, uh, when we're just exhausted by the world. That is when I find myself so deep in my feed. That's when I find myself stuck to my device and was like kind of unable to put it down. And, um, that's where they, that's where they take hold. That's what, you know, when we're sad, when we're depressed, when we're disempowered, when we're, when we're feeling like the world doesn't have something for us, that's when we're stuck in our feeds. Um, yeah. so that's, that's what I'm, I'm concerned about is that, is that, you know, basically reality, shared reality, I mean, qualify shared reality becomes actually, a, a you know, a, a difficult, uh, a, a difficult and inconvenient thing for mm -hmm. us as we become more dependent upon these tools for, uh, understanding the world. Well, to go back to, you know, what you said about Trump and like what he found was like we're being as manipulated by these algorithms as, you know, by the audience's response to us as much as, when, you know, we're feeding these things. Um, you actually quote this thing where you say, according to Stanford econ econ economist James E. Hamilton, uh, like he suggests there are five economic questions that explain what comes out of a reporter or producer the five economic W's, who cares about a particular piece of information? What are they willing to pay for it? What are, what are others willing to pay for their attention? Where can you reach these people through media outlets? When is it profitable to provide that information? Why is it profitable to provide that information? So this got me thinking, like, one, how in the world can, like, responsible journalism like, coexist with an ecosystem that rewards people for being salacious? Like, if you think about it, it's like, okay, well, if I'm running a media outlet, which I am, and it's like, okay, I can have something batshit crazy go out that like generates a shit ton of ad revenue. Um, or I can basically, you know, play it safe. Obviously the person who does the, the former is going to come out ahead. Uh, you know, and I, I remember seeing the CBS documentary once about a sweatshop uh, in China somewhere. So I think somewhere in Southeast Asia, there was a sweatshop. And it was going to be on CBS and it was about Nike. Nike happened to be sponsoring the Olympics that year on CBS. So they killed the documentary. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it, that, like, to me, I was like, okay, wait, that's like a small problem, but like on a bigger scale, like, like how can you have a media system 
where people are rewarded for producing things that are salacious, outrageous, and, you know, create like, you know, emotional responses in people. And at the same time, like be responsible in terms of how we produce. Yeah. So that's a great, uh, a great frame, I think, for, uh, for thinking about, I mean, that's a great, also a horrible story, right? That, that there was uh, people that, you know, in, inside the media organization that killed the story uh, because it was related to a sponsor. But uh, if you think about it, right, if, if you are the CEO of CBS at that point, you have a fiscal responsibility to do that. Nike sponsoring Olympics is worth like hundreds of millions of dollars to your company. Totally. Um, and even if you look at if you looked at any of the things that media presidents, company presidents said during the 2016 election, uh, I saw an interview with Jeff Zucker, the CEO of NBC. Somebody is like, did you keep Trump on because he got good ratings? And he kind of smirked. Les Moonves literally said this may not be good for America, but it's been damn good for CBS. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think CNN made a billion dollars in uh, gross profit. Yeah, I wondered, I, I was thinking to myself, all these media companies are going to really like lose a shit ton of money now that this guy is out of office. Right, <laughs> right, right. I mean, he's still he's still selling ads for us, right? He's still uh, he's still generating. He's still very much in the news. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, he, he could well be. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the front runner as well for that. I mean, he's a currently the front runner, but he could well be yeah. the, um, the, the primary candidate next year as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's a really important thing. I'm, I'm curious, how did you know about the story that, uh, that it was killed? Um, that, the, that, that particular story was killed. To be honest, I honestly, I'm pretty sure it was a YouTube documentary that mm. I saw. Mm-hmm. about sweatshops and it was a journalist telling this story and it that always stayed with me because it got me because you know like we have advertisers as well on a podcast and it got it just got me thinking about like wow will i kill a story for the sake of ad revenue and like you know that like if i were to, uh, it like between a right if it was like hey here's 15 grand you got to not air this one episode that'd be a hard thing to say no to yeah totally yeah that's that's well, <laughs> Like, and I've had people who've emailed me and asked me to take certain episodes down. But, you know, so we had uh, Mark Elliott from Nexium here who wanted to share a different side of the Nexium story, like, you know, which was like a more positive side. And I was willing to hear him out because I was like, okay, look, like I'm not invested in Nexium in any way at all. I want to hear what you have to say, you know? Um, and it pissed somebody off. Like one of our, one of my readers, actually, listeners actually emailed and said, I want you, to, I, I wish you would take it down. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think what you're what you're speaking to is this fundamental need of, uh, you know, news and media producers to stay in business, right? Uh, you know, if if a if a newspaper can no longer support itself, it is like literally forced out of business, right? And um, profit and influence are needed for it to survive. So uh, if you know if if it becomes unprofitable, then it won't actually. Uh, keep living. And, uh, you know, we, we have all been born into a, a media environment. Most of us were born into a media environment that included this whole, you know, enormously powerful set of institutions that was the old guard media, right? It was the big three networks. It was the major national newspapers. And they together, uh, you know, constitute this kind of, this kind of cartel of information, of new information for us, right? Um, that, uh, that provided, uh, and, and, you know, both an enormous service to society insofar as like it actually gave us information, kept us on the same page about issues that, that, uh, that were important to the day. But it also did kill certain stories that were inconvenient, 
or um, not part of the narrative, right? I mean, I'm just, I'm always surprised at how I go back to, you know, the, the, the 60s and the 70s and uh, in the United States to try to understand how crazy of a time that was in the United States, which is basically, you know, there was over 2000 bombings, um, domestic bombings in the United States in, uh, in, in the early 1970s in one year, right? And uh, people didn't know about those <laughs> because they weren't covered, right? They were literally terrorist bombings, domestic terrorist bombings that were happening all the time. Uh, during that during that era, but they didn't hear about it because it wasn't pushed through the mainstream media. Um, uh, and you know, similarly, if you look at that that you know the first uh, the first few years of that decade, you had the assassination of um, of uh, of JFK, of MLK, of RFK, and of uh, of Malcolm X within like a, a eight or nine year period. Right, just people were just you know major major. Uh, politicians and mainstream people were were just killed on a regular basis. But still, uh, when I when I talk to people uh, that were alive during that era, and they talk, I ask them, like, "How how does how was that different? How did that feel at that moment in time compared to now?" And almost universally, they'll say, "Oh, now is worse, right? <laughs> now is worse because back then it felt like we were still kind of on the same page, right?" So there was there was this this giant you know kind of uh, hand, right? That was over the top of all of our uh, information consumption at that moment in time, which was uh, the mainstream media that would force us to consume a certain type of information. Um, and it, it uh, constituted kind of a shared reality for everyone as a result. And there's, you know, I, I don't want to be uh, too nostalgic about that uh, era because there's a lot of things, you know, a lot of minority voices that were lost during that period and a lot of people that didn't get their stories told and a lot of really important narratives that weren't, uh, leveled for uh for us to 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 reckon with uh but it also did keep us more or less on the same page and allow us to kind of cohere around uh, a shared reality so then that that era is gone (laughs) i want to be clear like we're not we're not ever going back to that to that degree um uh, you know information is going to find its way out uh to all of us but there is something that i think is interesting and different about today that's important to recognize which is which is that currently we have people whose uh, reputations and profits are actually bolstered by uh, appealing to the biases of their audience, right? While before we had, uh, when you have a whole lot of different media organizations checking each other's biases and running stories against one another, um, then you actually have basically reputations on the line and people are called out for saying falsehoods on a regular basis. Today, we actually have benefits for appealing to those biases, and those benefits outweigh the detriments. So, mm-hmm. you know, if, if, if I want to, uh, if I want to build an audience online, it's much smarter for me to, uh, try to find out exactly what they want and serve news stories and information to them that, uh, that appeal to those biases in a fundamental way. Um, and to, you know, get them riled up about stuff. One, uh, millennial focused publisher, major editor of a major millennial focused publisher told me it's not our job to uh, challenge your opinions. Uh, it's our job to ride those biases as far as we can go, uh, as far as we can take them, because that's what makes money these days. Right. And that is, yeah. a, that is a transition that happened. I think that that is really important to recognize that we're currently living within. Um, and that's how, you know, 
falsehoods be, get huge. <laughs> people who spread falsehoods get huge followings uh, online. And that's how, how we've ended up in this kind of cacophonous information environment where it's very difficult to tell what is real and what isn't real. But like, I, I also think that it's possible for us to find a better way through this. I think that the current design of our social tools tends to prioritize information, right? That is, that is, uh, that is not based in reality. And it mm-hmm. doesn't take a whole lot of design tweaks to actually change things to make them slightly more, uh, oriented towards truth. And I don't mean that in terms of having, you know, the old model of, uh, you know, smoky boardrooms of people deciding whether or not to cover, you know, a, sweatsh- a sweatshop story, for instance. But, uh, but good information has a fingerprint. Like we actually know what good information looks like. It has, uh, waypoints that it hits or it doesn't hit. Hit. It has people who are professionally skeptical in the mix. Um, and, uh, it, it, uh, it, it has like a, a, you know, a rough pattern that is available to us, right? There's a, re- a reason why we still mostly trust Google and mostly trust Wikipedia is because they use, a f- they use different forms of citation to make sure that information is actually coming to you that has a good reference source, has good sourcing. And most of the time, stuff on social media does not have sourcing, right? It doesn't have any kind of structure of sourcing. It doesn't have an easy way to to source things, really. Um, And uh, it's prioritized mostly based on whether or not we'll just click on stuff. Um, So I want to like put on a little bit of an optimistic hat here and say, like, I think this is actually fixable in a lot of ways. We don't necessarily need to live in a a post-truth world, it's actually possible for us to design these tools to give us slightly better uh, and more accurate versions of reality. Like, you know, I I personally can't help but wonder, like, you know, is that going to come at a cost for these companies? Like, will it, you know, like potentially hit the bottom line if you were to do that uh, when people aren't clicking as much? Uh, that's just the first thought I had. Uh, I want to finish by talking about one last thing here, which was COVID in particular. Like you wrote about this WhatsApp group in the book, which, you know, I mean, I think COVID was such an interesting experience of like seeing how polar, like we took a health crisis and we turned it into a political one, I felt like. Uh, and like, you know, my sister is a doctor, my dad's a virologist. So you can imagine where I fell on all of this. Uh, but I have friends, like very close friends who to this day refuse to get vaccinated. And like, I, you know, I remember one of my closest friends, like, will not get vaccinated. And, you know, like I haven't been able to see her because we had a not, you know, my, my sister had, had like a baby at home. I was like, you know, I'd love to see you, but I can't right now because it's too risky. Um, and she was totally cool about it. But like, the thing is like, to your point, like, I think when I talk to some of these people, they're so convinced of whatever it is they believe in, they'll come up with all sorts of sources to back up their thought process too. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I have, I have a lot of friends also that are, uh, you know, extremely vaccine skeptical, uh, as well. Um, yeah. And look, COVID was a test of our epistemic foundations, right? It was a test of our, of our information processing abilities as a society. And it's one that we failed, I think, dramatically, right? We really did fail it. And, uh, it, the repercussions of that are still being felt in a lot of ways, right? I think, uh, you know, RFK Jr. having a major, uh, candidacy is a, is a result of that kind of epistemic failure in the same way. Um, uh, yeah. So to, to speak to this, and I, I think it's just really important to have compassion for people that might not believe the same things that you do. You know, I, I come up pretty hard, um, uh, for, you know, for, for capital T truth in the book, but I also really try to break down the, uh, the ways in which people can easily, uh, get, 
um, information that doesn't confirm uh, the you know this kind of mainstream narrative about about uh, about COVID and the vaccines. Um, the you know so the the story is I, I basically was I was in New York during the early days of the pandemic, and uh, when the city city was shutting down, I was uh, trying to get good information to friends. I was just a little bit early in kind of tracking what was happening. I follow a lot of public health individual uh, uh, practitioners and um, uh, people that work in uh, people that are doctors and people that are just very kind of close to these uh, these problems uh, and the pandemic preparedness and stuff like that. And so I was really just a couple of weeks ahead of the wave of people coming to grips with the fact that their life was going to be changed. Um, I was part of this WhatsApp group that just was, you know, it was a just a fire hose of terrible rumors, gossip, misinformation about what was going on uh, during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, people were saying that there's gonna be a run on the banks, and people were saying that the city was gonna be shut down, there's gonna be martial law. And, you know, that, that the bridges were gonna be shut down, and people were gonna get shot. And it was just it was a scary time, people really didn't know what to do. And so in my extended community, there was a WhatsApp group that was, uh, it ballooned to about 250 people um, that were trying to get good information about the pandemic. And um, I was doing my best throughout it to try to help filter the crazy narratives that were coming in about what was going on. Um, and it was, it became basically a full-time job. I'm just trying to, trying to verify information as it was coming through, um, you know, these, these crazy, crazy narratives that were coming through uh, WhatsApp. And this is really indicative of what was happening on social media writ large, right? Everyone suddenly went to social media to get uh, good information or accurate information or privileged information. I think it's really important to recognize that we all want privileged information. We all want to find, you know, we all want to know the person that knows the thing that, uh, that, that is the, the better source of information. We all, we are all kind of seeking that, right? Um, and, I call these people uh, uh, trust proxies, right? The, we used to kind of think of Walter Cronkite, as you said, uh, or you know Dan Rather as being kind of trust proxies for what is actually happening in the world, but they don't have the same sway anymore. Instead, we go to these people that are in our communities that maybe look like us or sound like us or sound smart that might be adjacent to the industry that we are trying to get information on, and we look to them instead. And uh, a lot of these people are, you know, there's like one or two degrees away from uh, from us. Uh, we might follow them online. They might be a friend. They might be a friend of a friend. But we look to them for accurate uh, privileged information. Uh, and I think it's really important to recognize, you know, if you are far away in this broader network of people that do public health work, if you're if you're far, if you don't know any doctors personally, if you're if you're not connected to to you know a public health person, uh, you don't know anyone that's working in an ER. Um, uh, you're, if you're if you're far away from from these sources of information then it makes a lot of sense that you might be skeptical of a vaccine, right? So, so uh, you know, I have some friends that, uh, that are doctors that have actually worked on vaccine uh, preparedness and also vaccine trials. And I know what goes into that process, right? They actually, you know, how strict they are, how long it takes. Um, you know, it's kind of amazing that we even get vaccines after the end of this process because it's so expensive and so hard to actually make sure that things are going right and that there's actually good, good data showing that's effective. Um, but if you're far from that process, like it's, it, it, they might as well be aliens, right? Offering you up, uh, you know, a special, uh, you know, a, a special injection that's going to save them from a disease that they've never heard of before, right? So it makes sense that people are skeptical of that. They might as, little, as well literally be aliens that are, you know, come down from above saying, oh, you know, you're, 
you might get this disease and this disease in order to get this, uh, get through this disease that you might get or you might not get, you need to actually get an injection. Um, and so that's, that's like to me, understandable that people would feel skeptical of that considering our current information environment. So just to, and to, to know about this like WhatsApp group, what I did to try to help, you know, reduce the flood of misinformation was I just, and I woke up one morning in this process of, you know, the city shutting down, all this crazy stuff happening. And people had made me a primary moderator of the group. Um, like some, one of the admins that started the group just made me the primary moderator because I'd spent so much time and effort just trying to filter through the good information and bad information. And so what I did was I implemented some very simple rules for tracking, uh, uh, for people's posting on this group, which was, uh, you have to post primary sources, uh, no memes. You can't post memes. Memes are actually not great for sense making. They're more, uh, they're, they're clever ways of, of parsing, uh, kind of political perspectives and, and, uh, you know, giving us emotional heads and humor, but they're not actually helpless for help, helpful for us, uh, in finding good information. So primary sources, um, questions are okay. Speculation is not okay. Rumor is not okay. And just doing that, just basically saying like, you need to, so- you need to source your statement. You can ask any question you want, but you need to source your statement and no memes. Just that it cut out 80 to 90% of the garbage information that was that was going through this feed. Um, and it actually became a, a pretty decent source for accurate news information that was coming through um, uh, online. And so, you know, just the process of sourcing and like we went through this before, right? Like there's a, there's uh, the history of this is actually the history of how we got to the enlightenment, right? Like before we had the printing press, we couldn't even compare texts. We couldn't source anything because we didn't have enough books around to source information. As soon as we could source information, we could start to corroborate whether or not claims were true. Like you'd have a, you know, a, a book that would have an, an, incan- an alchemical incantation uh, next to an actual medical intervention, right? And like you can't compare, you can't figure out if that's accurate or not until you have something else to compare it to. So, um, so that process of citation is such a core piece of how we figure out what is true. Um, and something that's very much missing from the current social web and something that I think we could add in and make it much better. Wow. Um, well, this is clearly a very deep rabbit hole. So uh, I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think that something that makes people unmistakable uh, is their desire to be okay uh, with the difficult process of finding the truth. Uh, truth is really hard. and uh, if you are willing to kind of sit with the ambiguities and uh, not go with the the, the immediate emotional uh, reaction, but actually sit with some of the the kind of difficult uh, contradictions that come from the information that we're we're uh, we're blasted with on a daily basis, I think it makes a huge difference um, to the quality of your work and your thinking. Uh, so I think that yeah, really really being willing to explore the gray areas. Uh, that's where the richness is, and uh, that's where we can we can find much more accurate versions of reality. Hmm. Amazing. Well, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, the book, and uh, all the rest of your work? Yeah, you can find me at outragemachine.org. Uh, and there I'll, I have a Substack that uh, I've been building and uh, putting uh, helpful tips and tricks about how to have a healthy relationship with social media um, and how to kind of understand how to fix this current 
outrage machine that we're all a part of. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. 
This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.